All right, so um, Dave, welcome to uh, Civilizations episode 20. We are um, going to India for, <laughs> well, we're going to the whole subcontinent, really, because this is, it's not just India, right? It's India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, Sri Lanka. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big, big chunk of the world. So um, it's a big chunk of the world and it's a big chunk of change. So I guess I wanted to talk first about, um, there, there's a paper that, that was put out by a couple of uh, Indian economists uh, led by the first authors, Utsa Patnaik. And they, they were describing kind of like the system and trying to come to an estimate of how much uh, wealth was actually drained from India over the course of British colonialism. And the estimate is 45 trillion. So once you're talking about trillions of dollars, you're really like the mind. The, the, I don't believe the human mind can really uh, make sense of this. That's trillion with a T? Yeah. So I I read recently and kind of laughed last summer. I read a paper. Well, it was, yeah, it was in um, the climate change. It was in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change special report on land. And they said, economists have estimated the value of ter- all terrestrial ecosystem services to be $72 trillion. And I thought, how could you possibly estimate the value of terrestrial ecosystem services because there's no way to substitute them, right? <laughs> like if you if you don't have these, we all die. <laughs> so it's not like you can get that money and buy some more ecosystem services. So all of which is to say, like, forty five trillion just means to me what it means is like basically you took you took uh, one of the wealthiest societies and made it into one of the poorest, and it, and you did that in one of the largest uh, chunks of human uh, population and territory in the world. So it's a, it's a mind boggling scale. But I also, um, there, it was written up because this number was so big, I think, and their, their work was otherwise rigorous. Um, so lots of newspapers actually took up this study when it came out. And one of them in Al Jazeera, he talks about the, um, the, the writer talks about the specific mechanisms of this drain. Um, the perspective he gives is that it's forty-five trillion is seventeen times more than the UK's GDP today. Um, yeah, so if they were to start paying back now, they would ta- they would they would have no money for themselves, and it would be forty-five. It would be seventeen years. Um, so that's not going to happen. So um, okay, so prior to the, I'm quoting the article now. Prior to the colonial period, Britain bought goods like textiles and rice from Indian producers and paid for them in the normal way, mostly with silver, as they did with any other country. Okay, cool. No problem. (laughs) But something changed in 1765 after the East India Company took control of the subcontinent and established a monopoly over Indian trade. The East India Company began collecting taxes in India and then used a portion of those revenues, about a third, to fund the purchase of Indian goods for British use. In other words, instead of paying for Indian goods out of their own pocket, British traders acquired them for free, buying from peasants and weavers using money that had just been taken from them. Um, So Indians didn't know what was going on because the agent who collected the taxes was not the same as the one who showed up to buy their goods. Well, Well played on Britain's part. Some of the stolen goods were consumed in Britain and the rest were re-exported elsewhere. Um... Okay, so, so here's, here's, here's a question. I can see that to uh, an Indian at the time, you're going to pay taxes anyway. 
Yeah. Whether you pay them to the, the Sultan or the Nawab or, or to the East India Company, it's all the same. Yeah, except but the how rates. Did, how did the yeah. East India Company get into a position where they were allowed to collect taxes? Yeah, well, they, yeah, they, um, partly treaties and partly uh, battles, right? So what they, tr- what they tried to do was extend their, they, they kind of, ex- we, yeah, I'll talk about that in a bit, but they, they would extend their territory uh, over which they collected their taxes um, gradually one, you know, one bit of land at a time or one kingdom at a time. Um, usually through wars, so we'll uh, we'll get to that. Um, so a uh, special new twist after 1858, but that gets us ahead of our story, but we might as well um, deal with it now. Indian producers were before as the East India Company's monopoly broke down, Indian producers were allowed to export their goods directly to other countries, but Britain made sure that the payments for those goods nonetheless ended up in London. How did this work? Basically, anyone who wanted to buy goods from India had to get special council bills, a unique paper currency issued only by the British crown. The only way to get those bills was to buy them from London with gold or silver. So traders would pay gold in London to get the bills and then use the bills to pay Indian producers. When Indians cashed the bills in the colonial office, they were paid in rupees out of tax revenues, money that had just been collected from them. Once again, they're not paid in at all. Uh, they were defrauded. So um, when India is running a surplus with the rest of the world, it shows up as a deficit in the national accounts because the real income is appropriated by Britain. Um, okay, anything else? Yeah, so the windfall from this fraudulent system fuels the Industrial Revolution, fuels the invasion of China in the 1840s, and in fact, the suppression of the (laughs) rebellion that I'm about to talk about. Um, The expansion of capitalism in Europe, in Canada, and Australia. So um, Patnaik identifies four distinct economic periods, calculates the extraction from each, and modest rate of interest to come with this 45 trillion figure. Um, yeah. And so, uh, part of there's other elements to the economic system. One is deindustrialization. So now this is Shashi Tharoor, um, just repeating that element of the system in power. The British stopped paying for textiles and silk in pounds bought, brought from Britain, preferring to pay from revenues extracted from Bengal and pushing prices still lower. They squeezed out other foreign buyers, instituted a company monopoly. I've already covered those elements. They cut off the export markets for Indian textiles, interrupting long-standing independent trading links. They went further. Indian textiles were remarkably cheap. Britain's cloth manufacturers, unable to compete, wanted them eliminated. The soldiers of the East India Company obliged, systematically smashing the looms of some Bengali weavers, and according to at least one contemporary account, breaking their thumbs so they could not ply their craft. So... Um, it's also like a very violent deindustrialization and a actual destruction of the machinery. So it's like people talk about the Luddites smashing machinery and getting in the way of progress, but uh, the British East India Company did plenty of smashing of machinery and weavers themselves. Um, then you have people, these artisans, so it's like to the extent that India and Bengal in particular at this time was industrialized. It's being deindustrialized. People are going back to try to make do subsistence agriculture. And this is where the, this is where the, 
kind of swindle takes on the most sinister aspect, which is uh, leads directly to famines because the traditional uh, rulers of India are not trying to take all the surplus back to another country. So they store large amounts of grain when they have good harvests uh, in order to um, in order to have an insurance policy for the bad harvests. And the British see all these storehouses of grain and think, oh, this is awesome. So they just pick them up and go and resell them and kind of commoditize them. And that leads to a series of famines um, over the course of company and then British imperial rule, like uh, some just massive famines that come up over and over again. So this is, uh, I think I I passed you late Victorian holocausts by uh, Mike Davis Mm -hmm. some years ago. So he talks about these things in detail, mostly, again, India, but Africa, Brazil had famines like this too. But um, just to focus on India, we have... Um, In 1770, the Great Bengal Famine. In 1782, 83, the Madras Famine. 1783, 84, the Chalisa Famine around Delhi. In 1791, 92, the Dojabara Famine in Hyderabad. In 1837, 8, the Agra Famine. And then there's a series of famines after 1857 as well. The Orissa Famine in 1866, the Bihar Famine in 1873, the South India Famine in 1876, the Great Indian Famine of 1896 to 1900, the Bombay Famine of 1905-06, the 1943-44 to Bengal Famine, which was that's, another big one. To yeah. me, that's the shocking thing. Not that there were famines, because there were famines before the British showed up. I think the British definitely made them larger in scale and obviously worse. Yeah. But the horrifying thing is that there seems to have been absolutely zero learning from this. No, it's the opposite of learning, Dave. It's it's they are they're doing things they know will lead to famine because they don't care. Did, did they? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like they were taking food. I mean, it's the same with Ireland. They were taking food away when during famine for export. You know, they were guarding it with armed men and they were shooting people who were trying to get it yeah and they had their doctrines too right like they had that this is this is around the malthusian you know malthus and the political economists of britain that talk about like you know if the market means people have to starve then it means they have to starve that's kind of their thing so the estimates are like 25 million when you try to count it up 25 million from 1770 to 1900 and then another 10 million over the 20th century um and it's interesting because uh Tharur makes this comparison where five million they estimate that five million people died in war from 1793 to 1900 and 25 million died in famine in india in that period so famine is a big killer probably the biggest killer in India at this time. All right, so you were asking, how did the British East India Company come to uh, get into this position that it got into? And uh, there's a book by William Dalrymple uh, called The Anarchy. I think it's from two, maybe three years ago. And that's exactly the the topic that he kind of takes on. It's 
the subtitle is the irresistible rise of the East India Company. Yeah, except and, I don't I don't believe that it was irresistible or that it was uh, you know predetermined or inevitable. Well, in some sense, that's what if 1857 was, right? I mean, it was it was like an attempt to try to stop this irresistible rise. Yeah, and it led they, to their early career. The East India Company was as incompetent as anybody else, and it's a it's a real combination of uh, luck and opportunism, not always their own, because they they were playing a game that was being played by all the Indian rulers. And yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I see what you're saying, but it was, um, oh yeah, you have things you want to say here. I well, see. <laughs> yeah, because in the 1700s, uh, India was much like Germany. It's, it's a general term, but there is no single country of India. Obviously it's a whole bunch of independent States of different sizes, uh, some more powerful, some wealthy, and some influential, the Mughal Empire in, in the north. And, and when the East India Company showed up, they weren't the only Europeans trading there. The Portuguese were there first. Uh, the Dutch uh, in Sri Lanka and, uh, and the French. And the English and French carried their rivalry from Europe to India. And if you're an Indian ruler, it doesn't take a whole lot of brains to figure out that these guys are fighting each other so you you shop you try to get a better deal from one or the other and you play them off against each other which is exactly what the english and french did with the indian rulers if i can get a better deal from this ruler we're going to go and trade with him and i want him to do well so i'll support him in war i think they learned this divide and conquer strategy over the course of decades well, they were doing similar things in the Americas, right? Like that, I see a lot of connection in the Indian wars, even like that we talked about a couple episodes ago, where a lot of the Indian wars included the U.S. and certain Indian allies against the Indian nation they were attacking at that time, right? So Yes, and there was probably no likelihood of, you know... Uh, North American Aboriginal people, you know, joining up in a huge United. coalition that just wasn't going to happen. And, and yeah, other than, I mean, the six nations, I guess, was the closest thing. Yes. Yes. And whereas there's no uh, Indian league of opposition or, you know, a defense league, they didn't support each other. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a, a tendency to use hindsight and say that, you know, this was inevitable once they landed. I don't think it was. No, I don't think it was inevitable, but I also don't quite think it's using hindsight in the sense that, um, like, the 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 kind of like part it's partly British propaganda too to say that this is like hopelessly divided and that it's ruled by foreigners. It's all India has always been ruled by foreigners. There's always that kind of rhetoric as well. But I think you can make that case about any country, you know, like England was ruled by Saxons and Romans and Normans and William of Orange came over. So it's um, it just it's it like I'm wary of stories of like India's eternal kind of um, disunity or uh, susceptibility to being conquered or ruled by foreign rulers. Um, you know, I, I like that's that's 
that was Nehru's position too, right? Like there's, um, and that's the, the kind of Indian sources that I'm reading now is um, that they try to make an argument that there is some kind of under uh, overlying or underlying Indian idea. I guess, I guess you, you know, you made the analogy to Germany, which we will be talking about. Yeah. Uh, And, and there was, yeah, there were big wars for German unification around this, not different from this time. So again, we're kind of talking about like things that revolutionary processes that seem to be happening in these kind of waves, right? Across the world. I'll just leave it with this. The British did have one enormous advantage and that was a Navy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are no Indian rulers with a major Navy. Mm-hmm. Even the Mughal yeah. Empire did not want to tangle with the British at sea. No. But the other question is, how the hell did the British conquer India using Indian troops? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that was the... And again, that's that's what it, 1857, like a lot of this war is about trying to uh, recruit back <laughs> the the Indian troops that are fighting for the, mm-hmm. for the British. So yeah. you've got a rather impressive list of wars here. I sure do. Uh, so, and this is, this is also like the irresistible, that, that idea, like the seemingly irresistible rise and the, the divide and conquer um, element of what the British India company was doing. So we have the Maratha wars, the Maratha were the big military power, including when, when the British showed up, you know, the Mughals were um, past their, well, they, no, they were the British were there throughout Mughal, <laughs> Mughal strength. Um, but after Aurangzeb died, I think we talked about this yes. a long time ago. Uh, after Aurangzeb died was when the so-called anarchy started, and the Marathas and the Sikhs were both uh, big powers in the areas where the Mughals had been strong. Um, so the Marathas uh, that was, and we talked about Shivaji uh, as in, in our episode about the Greats. But they fought a series of wars, three one, three rounds, 1775 to 82, 1803 to 05, and 1817 to 1818 against the British. Um, there were the Anglo-Mysore Wars, which we were tempted to do a separate thing about because that's Hyder Ali and Tipu Sultan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think we will. <laughs> so there were four rounds, 18, 1767 to 69, 1780 to 84, 1790 to 92, 1798 to 9. And then Sri Lanka, which I didn't, I only found about, found out about re- researching this, um, this episode was mm-hmm. there were the two rounds of what they called the Kandia Wars with the Kandia Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And there was the, in the interior. Yeah. And so, and then there were the third round in 1817 slash 18 when it was forced into a protectorate. So there was a, Rebellion here, which uh, one of the authors I was reading kind of characterizes as the 1857 of Sri Lanka, because it was like Tamil Sinhalese, Buddhist, Hindu, and Muslim. They were all united, um, and they were kind of kind of systematically destroyed by British warfare. Um, this was in yeah 17, 1817, 18, and then um, the I guess it was the Dutch, right? Um, or whoever it was, they gave British the European population self-government in 1833, which is kind of like what they did in Canada, right? There's like a, a self, what do they call it? Responsible government yeah. for Canada. Um, and then the enclosure, the equivalent of the enclosures they did, for they called it the Wasteland Ordinance. 
So the I, the vision for Sri Lanka was like kind of like white tea planters uh, using indentured labor and then producing Ceylon tea for the world market. Um, there was a peasant uprising in 1848 under the leaders Puran Apu, Gongalegora Banda, and Dingirala. It was called the Kurunegala Revolt. And it was, uh, they were attacked and burned courts, British bungalows, and notably tax records. Mm-hmm. Got to burn those tax records. <laughs> um, so I did some research for myself. Uh, I was trying to figure out who was fighting against the British in Kerala. Uh, so it was a personal, uh, I, I did something for Lydia as well, uh, Dave, which okay. I'll get to. I don't know if you've seen my notes, but uh, women warrior section. Yes. But yeah, so the British, after they killed Tipu Sultan, they occupied Malabar, which is part of Kerala. And there was a Malabar peasant uprising under Unnimuta. There was Attan Gurukal and Chamban Poker, uh, allied with Kanavet, Nambiar, Erachena, Kungan, Pajasi Raja, and Pulpali Raja. They were defeated. When they were defeated, some of their followers were actually exiled to Australia. What? So there may, yeah, there may be some Malayalis exiled to Australia. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, so sometimes when people talk about the antecedents, oh, let me do the mutinies after. Let me move these notes. Um, also in Kerala, uh, in Travancore in 1809, there's the Prime Minister Veluthampi. Uh, who was a British ally. So he did a number of things for the East India Company. But when they fixed the price of pepper at a low price, because uh, Kerala, one of Kerala's big um, exports was pepper, um, Veluthampi did not take kindly to this and decided to uh, fight. He made an alliance with Cochin's prime minister. So Travancore and Cochin were separate kingdoms. He made a they made an alliance and they fought one battle at Kollam. Kollam being my mother's hometown. Um, so they fought a big battle there in 1809. Um, but the British uh, kind of were able to raise more men and counterattack um, and uh, did their mass hanging kind of reprisal method. Um, so there were, okay, so there are a couple of antecedents to the mutiny aspect of the mutiny. Um, One was in 1806, um, where George Barlow, uh, one of their commanders, one of the British commanders, he demanded he demanded of the Madras army that they wear a certain kind of outfit and it was going to cover their head and their head. They had certain rituals about the way they wore their beards and their their hair and their forehead. And so they turned that down. They said it was religiously, uh, you know, forbidden for them. So that was called the Velour Mutiny. And Colonel Gillespie uh, put that one down, massacred some of the soldiers and um, put down that mutiny. So that was like the first uh, kind of religiously, that was the first time they that sepoys, the soldiers of the Indian soldiers of the East British East India Company kind of said, we can't do that because of religion. And they were disciplined. Um, Again, in 1814, the Anglo-Nepal War, the Indian soldiers didn't want to go, but there was no big mutiny or rebellion. Then 1824, there was a problem where the British wanted to send troops from the Bengal residency to Burma, um, but the troops didn't want to sail because they uh, they were kind of forbidden to sail off away from their land religiously based on their caste. 
Um, so Edward Paget ordered them onto the field, told them to put their guns down. He had his cannons. Uh, he had a screen of European troops in front of his cannons. He had them put their guns down. He moved the troops out of the way and fired grape shot into them. So discipline, quite a quite a quite a method of discipline there. Um, there was a Kut uprising in Mangalore over again the cash crop fixing the Kut. Korg insurrection of 1830, also in South in Mangalore. There's a there's a bunch of stories I found about Muslims fighting the, the British uh, in Kerala. They're called the Mapalas in Kerala, and there's lots of stories of these Mapalas being, you know, um, that kind of fanatical warrior that fight, you know, where three guys or nine guys fight a hundred sepoys and they'll be hiding in the village and a hundred troops will come and be like, Oh, I don't want to go in there. There's mapalas in there. Hmm. So um, the Dutch uh, kind of expanded into Indonesia in a very similar way. So there's like the, what's called the Java war um, in Indonesia, 1825 to 1830. Um, and the leader of this is Dipo Negoro. So you can look that up. Perhaps. And they say that the estimates are that 200,000 Javanese died out of 3 million fighting the Dutch, which is about a similar proportion to, uh, to 1857. They, uh, the estimates are that uh, about 10 million Indians were killed in 1857-8 uh, fighting the British. So it was about 7% of the population. Um 1821 to 1837, the Padri War, also in Indonesia. And the fa- they had like a similar kind of famine regime in Indonesia where they're, uh, you know, basically making huge profits and instituting famines. We have the Opium War. We're going to do the Opium War separately, right? Oh, yeah. The kind of China, yeah. So we have the Opium War, which I always joke as, uh, you know, the British helped the Chinese because deal with their opium addiction. <laughs> uh, no, uh, we'll we'll talk about what the opium war was later. Um, and then 1839 to 1842, the British um, take the Bengal army to invade Afghanistan. And this becomes a problem partly because um, a lot of the Muslim troops from Bengal, they don't want to fight um, Muslim Afghans. Um, the Hindus don't want to cross the Indus River for their caste reasons. Um, and the war itself doesn't go too well. So um, they That's lose. That's putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, a lot of them are, so, some of them are sold into slavery. They lose their caste. Um, and they also, up until this point, apparently the British had a real mystique. So it was like, when you join as a sepoy, you're part of like an unbeatable army. At least that's what they thought, even though there were, you know, losses here and there. It was this kind of feeling that the British East India Company's army was invincible. I didn't know and, that. Yeah. And 1839 to 1842, it's proven otherwise. It shattered the myth of invincibility. <laughs> yeah. So that's another one of the causes where the sepoys that did revolt and the Indian forces that joined were, you know, one of their arguments was, you know, look, they're not invincible. We can't they have been beaten even you know in 18 recently it was just 15 years before right the Sikh wars there was a pretty big Sikh empire over a couple of decades um and then that kind of came to an end in the second round of the Sikh war 
they scared the the British something awful. They had a mm-hmm. really, really uh, highly reputed army. No, yeah, and good artillery. Um, yes. The Marathas too, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, they, they, yeah, there's lots of, when you read the Sikh war accounts, it's like they bear, there's a lot of like, they barely, uh, they barely won that one. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, Um, the, the damage from Afghanistan shattered the myth of invincibility losing to the, uh, uh, the Sikh shortly after that would have been potentially disastrous. Yeah. That's kind of what I was suggesting about the, uh, the role of non-inevitability in this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's true. And there were, if like in, I'm not going to get to down to that level of detail, but there were lots of moments in 1857 like that, mm-hmm. where things could have gone even a little differently, and then that would have been potentially the end of 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 England in of the British in India, and then India would have gone like yeah, like Italy or Germany at this time, right? They would have had some kind of Anyway, uh, okay, so as, now getting to the, uh, so invincibility is shattered, and then also there's this gradual change in the nature of the British East India Company and the nature of serving the East India Company. Yes. So there were 315,000 some men, um, and the British East India Company was paying about 10 million pounds for this this army, this sized Annual? army. Yep. Wow. So 5.7 million pounds of this goes to the 50,000 European officers. So that's about, oh. about 60% goes to, uh, I don't know, one, one sixth of the, yeah, one sixth. They're like two, two, four sixths, four sixths goes to one sixth. <laughs> and then the other um, two sixths goes to the uh, five sixths. Um, so, and the European officers also don't do ordinary duties because they have um, Indians doing everything right for yeah. them. <laughs> they don't carry things. They don't, you know, polish things. <laughs> they don't sweep things or clean things. Um, and then, as for the so the this thirty seven or forty seven percent of the money that goes to five sixths of the Indian troops, most of that also kicks back to their own white officers. So. Um, they're walking away with maybe one rupee per month. Um, promotion is by seniority, not by merit in the in the East India Company for Indians. Um, and uh, sepoys also can't retire because the British East India Company says uh, they can't afford it. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I thought there was a term of service. Like once you no, take the old. salt, you're you're in for life. There's old, yeah, it's full of old guys. Yeah, you can, no, you can go if you want to, I think, once your term is up. But you can't, uh, you're not going to get a pension or anything like that. Okay, so Um, this is something that changed over the years. There's a definite um, transformation in in the East India Company's army. mm -hmm. And it has to do with a change in the type of Europeans who were coming out. Mm -hmm. So in the... 1700s you find india overrun with these adventurers from europe british Mm. but also french some italians i think one of the sikh uh regiments was uh avitabiles (laughs) you think who the hell was that well you know some european adventurer who originally trained them and they kept the name um these early guys 
you know, quite a few of them were lower class. There's a, a, a certain number of, I can only describe them as rascals. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, they're out there to make money, but being lower class, they're far more likely to identify with the men that they're leading. Yeah, fact, and that's exactly their that's food, one of the things. They share yeah. their experiences and they're proud of their men. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, once India is a little more, um, how would you put it? Settled, Under control. Settled, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then the type of Brits who come out changes. Now you start getting the upper class twits who are also looking <laughs> to get rich, but they don't want to share the, you know, the experiences of their men. They certainly expect a better uh, place to live and food and servants. And there's a distance now between the officers and the men that wasn't there before. Yeah, exactly. And the British, um, there's like a, partly because of this, this cohort change mm-hmm. uh, that there, but there's also cha- like social changes in Britain that are happening. And I guess in India to the British community, but they're like racism is becoming more and more of a thing, yeah. which also means their attitude towards the religion is changing. So they're, they're scandalized increasingly by uh, the fact that the East India company is managing shrines and holy sites, which they're doing for revenue. But um, the fact that they're spending some portion of that money uh, maintaining the holy sites, the British, uh, you know, the British kind of religious character is basically that you're fund, you're using public funds. <laughs> Never mind that it's funds you stole from India, but public funds to uh, run these idol- idolatrous establishments. Um, there's lots of missionaries coming more and more, yes. which becomes a, a problem. Um, the missionaries are doing things like ridiculing local religions in public, and they're protected by the police and by state power, I, uh, I which Japan makes people... Had, I think Japan had the right idea about missionaries. Yeah, yeah exactly. But to, so what happens is like people get the idea, which they're not wrong, that that these, you know, these states, there's a state-sponsored effort to... Uh, change people's religion yeah and they open these schools there's henry carr tucker with the Kanpur free school jc norayan school at benares these are christian schools and it's not like a school that happens to be christian because you'll have like on a test you'll have the question who is your redeemer <laughs> so i don't even think we had that at catholic school <laughs> at uh at gates when you taught there i don't ever remember being asked even in religion class who is your redeemer <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that's kind of the flavor of the education. The deputy inspectors of schools were often Christian clergy. Um, they would. There's a judge named R.T. Tucker, who was a judge in Fatehpur, and he would jail people, and then he would Christianize the prisoners. They would do all kinds of things to make the prisoners into Christians. Uh, judge Robertson... In Bareilly, he refused to recommend an imam. That was practiced that the judge would do that to do Muslim marriages and so on in, in that jurisdiction. And he said, I'm afraid I can't uh, because that would be uh, helping people to remain heathen. Oh my God. <laughs> so, uh, I, I thought all the religious lunatics in Britain went to the States. <laughs> no, no, no. They were leftovers, uh, obviously. There's many souls to be saved. <laughs> More souls to be saved over in India, for sure. So Mercer says, there's a guy named Mercer who says the evangelists wanted to Christianize India once and for all. And they keep doing these little things that mess up the Indian caste system. 
So, you know, Indian caste system is based on like different castes eating separately. So they introduce interdining. Um, and that's another one of these things with the cartridge issue that we'll talk about. Um, village accountants who needed to learn Hindi are sent to missionary school. Um, but all these famines that I talked about, they create many, many orphans. The orphanages are Christian and raise kids as Christians. Um, and people, you know, the Goa, you know, even though Goa wasn't the English, but Goa had, um, you know, an inquisition, um, where they were actually burning people at the stake for being, you know, false converts. So these are all happening around in, in the environment, right? So people are, people have memories of these things and, uh, and knowledge of these things, um, one lieutenant about the racism issue, one lieutenant wrote, uh, Lieutenant Verney, he wrote a letter saying, in every British mind in India, contempt for the natives is deeply rooted. Um, and there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of road building going on. <laughs> and a lot of these roads, uh, Indians are finding suspicious because the roads seem to require knocking down Hindu temples and Muslim mosques. <laughs> So uh, maybe, you know, maybe it could be, well, but you, it just you know seems what, that. Yeah. You know what the roads are for? They're not for the convenience of Indians. They're for no. the, the movement of the British army and uh, trade. Yeah, stuff. Um, there's in 1857, there's a war with Burma and one of the units, the 38th British uh, Infantry British Indian infantry, I guess, refuses to go. And it's Dalhousie, and Dalhousie doesn't massacre them. He's worried. He's a little bit worried about what might happen there. Um, and what's that? Do you want to add something there? Oh, oh British Native Infantry. Yeah, the name of the, of the unit was uh, the 38th BNI. That's British uh, Native Infantry. Oh, or, got it. Okay. Or, or maybe even... Are they troops from Bengal again? Yes. Then it's Bengal um, Native Infantry. Bengal Native Infantry, right. Uh, okay, and then Edmund from Calcutta. So this is these are things that start leaking. There's a guy named Edmund from Calcutta, and he says, uh, you know, we're, we're building railways, we're doing education here. Isn't it time for the entire people to, pros to profess a common faith and attain salvation? So <laughs> that's a foot and mouth <laughs> kind of situation uh the second opium war starts uh 1856 so there's lots of actually the proper kind of white british troops are actually over there in china fighting so then a lot of them end up having to come back uh to india to suppress 1857 yeah um all right so 1856 dalhousie leaves um there's a you know there's this very repulsive practice, sati, which uh, the Indian widow, you've probably, everybody's heard of it. The Indian widow uh, burns, you know, is burned uh, at this, alongside her uh, cremated husband. So when they ban this practice, the British ban this practice and, you know, fine, nobody's, nobody's mourning this practice, but uh, in the, in all the, with all the other stuff going on, the Indian, there's another Indian, like, grievance that they're trying to christianize um 
Christianized this way. Well, sure, the timing um, is suspect. The British have been yeah. in India for over a hundred years, and you choose to do this now. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, and then uh, there's some pay cuts, um, <laughs> all the various hu- humiliations, the kickbacks, and then um, the the grievance of like not being able to hold. Uh, positions above a certain level. Um, you know, one of the historians I read, Surendranath Sain, he has this quote where he says, within living memory, their fathers and grandfathers had governed provinces and commanded armies, but now they're, conf- you know, their children are confined to lower positions in the army and bureaucracy on strictly racial grounds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the British introduced the law of sale, um, so the law of sale is basically, uh, if you commit a crime, you know, you can, your land is sold and, and it's like, basically there's a specific group called the Banyas who are, uh, benefiting from this. They, ca- they continuously seem to get the, a lot of them are the kind of tax collectors and they end up buying the, the land of these people whose land is sold out from under them. Uh, and this, the Thornhill, another uh, British writer, he says, you know, the problem is the settlement of the revenue is entrusted to young officers whose whole careers were before them. So it's basically like you said, these younger upper class men who are going to have to squeeze, um, they're going to have to squeeze hard to make all the money they want to make while they're in India so they can go back home wealthy. Um, so they fix really high rates. Uh, if the peasants or local land landlords can't pay, then they, they, they invoke the law of sale. Um, also, the British are taking over kingdoms at this point at a pretty heavy rate. This is under Dalhousie. So they, they'll show up and they'll say, you know, you're going to be the last king and uh, we're going to take, take over the land directly. And don't worry, though, because we're going to pay you a pension. So in this way, there's Punjab, Satara, Jhansi, the Karnatik, Tanjore, Nagpur. Um, and Nagpur was particularly, like, you know, humiliating because they killed the royal elephants, horses, bullocks, sold them off at the price of carrion. The furniture was removed. The jewels of the royal family were sent to the Calcutta market. Yeah, orig- so, originally they, they would intervene in cases of a disputed succession. Yeah and argue that, you know, we're preventing a civil war here. But then they would <laughs> yeah. choose the ruler that they liked better, usually the yeah. older childless one. Mm-hmm. And then they would find some way to, you know, steal the land, or as you say, pension them off and, and take over the administration of the, of the land. Yeah. So this was, this, it's all like, yeah, it's none of this. Nobody would accept this, right? Like the British would not accept this in their own country. So. No, no. <laughs> it's not. A, it's not like a fair deal they're giving anybody. Um, okay, so in Avad, which was one of the big um, kind of reasons for the war causes of this um, revolt, revolution. First War of Independence, uh, because the the leader of Avad, the, the king of Avad, was so loyal to the British, and they just decided to an- annex the kingdom anyway. So people were really kind of asking, like, if they dethrone loyal kings, you know, who who won't they dethrone? Um, 
Colonel Wheeler, <laughs> um, who's in charge of some of these units, there's this issue of the cartridges. And there's, you know, the cartridges is hugely overblown in history, but the cartridge issue was a, was a real part of this issue. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So they introduced the Enfield rifle. Uh, and they have this cartridge that you have to bite off. You bite the, you get the powder and the musket bullet in the same cartridge. You bite the tip off. You put the, put the powder in. You put the ball in. But the but the cartridges are greased, and the sepoys are like, "What's the grease?" And uh, and they're not getting any good answers. And they think that they hear that the grease is is with is pig and and cow fat which means muslims are offended and hindus are lose their caste status if they uh eat cow fat or even touch cow fat so i don't um, even know what it was uh you know I, nobody knows what it was i don't think it probably was pig and cow fat <laughs> honestly but, no, why, why would you use both <laughs> <laughs> well, that but that's the conspiracy theory, right? The sepoys figured if they're trying to Christianize you and they up and say, like, look, everybody in India, our troops are um, no longer caste Hindus because they bite cow fat. And so, like, deal with it. And then so then you probably would have to convert to Christianity at that point. Right? Okay, but that's so, really incredibly stupid. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was the accounts that I've read. You've got British officers going out and assuring their men that it's not that, but not telling them what it is. Yeah, but and and that's the thing because it probably was that, or um, you know, or they also didn't feel like they had to answer to these, you know, black bastards. Right? That's another. Do as you who do you? Yeah, who do you think you are? So um, Mangal Pandey, <laughs> he uh, gets, he's a Brahmin. He's not like a rich Brahmin, but he's a, he's a Brahmin. Well, he's see, fought. Yeah. He's fought in the, uh, he's fought in the Anglo-Afghan war, I think. No, no. He's actually younger than that. He's, he's young. He may have fought uh, with the, with the British in Herat or something. Okay. Um, oh, he fought against the Afghans. No, with the Afghans against the Persians in Herat. Maybe. I don't know. But he um, he's in the 34th. Uh, and he, um, he when his unit, they, they mutiny when his unit is ordered to disband. He gets into a fight with two British officers at the same time. They, there's disputes of whether he like then shot himself when he was surrounded or not. But he didn't kill himself and he was hanged. Um, and his unit was disbanded. And uh, that was a big, that was a big mistake, <laughs> I guess, for the British in the sense that people were really incensed about that. And, um, you know, they, it didn't make the cartridge issue go away. Um, no. And that's what they said. Like, they were basically pleading and saying, you know, you're making us choose between our religion or our employer. <laughs> and their commander in chief was basically like, yeah. That's too bad. <laughs> you know, you you signed up to fight for us. You have to do what you're told. Are you coming back to Mangal Pandey? I want to know how how what's the best movie about him because there's about 45 of them, aren't there? <laughs> I was I watched the uh 2005 one. The 2005 one, you know, I love um I love Rani Mukherjee. She's in it. Uh but it, 2005 one has um it's like kind of centers on his relationship with his white 
commanding officer. And so that's like the tragedy is that they can't be friends anymore because, you know, they're gradually being torn apart by this coming mutiny. Okay. Um, but it was pretty good. You know, I thought it was pretty sympathetic, at least to that guy. I can't remember what they called him. Uh, I don't know if he's a, he was a real person, but um, <laughs> yeah, they have they have the funny scene. They have like a mischievous kind of uh, street sweeper guy who who shows up and, and comes up to Mangal Pandey and says, you know, hey, uh, you know, g- give me your water or whatever. And Mangal Pandey's like, hey, you're about to defile a Brahmin. Get out of my way. And he's like, Def- I'm going to defile a Brahmin? You're going to defile yourself by biting those cartridges. And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then, uh, that a Russian that- agent? Yeah, it's a Russian agent who's working for Putin. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, there is, there is actually an aspect of, of truth to this. The, the rumors about the cartridges certainly spread very quickly but they're being pushed along by uh some of the leftover independent rulers who are i guess thinking about their opportunities but there's Mm -hmm. a lot of suspicion that the russians are behind it part of this great game which i guess we'll cover later when we (laughs) yeah i mean are we getting to afghanistan uh i you know i don't know i don't have an afghanistan uh episode in um in our scheme. Oh, put one in. Let's put one in. <laughs> this one's on you, Dave. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the episode being on you, the expansion of the show being on you. Um, the expansion of the number of episodes. You also split it, Italy and German unification. So oh, my fault. That also, okay. That also wasn't me. I'm not, I'm not the only expander of the... Okay, so Meirut is where the mutiny starts proper, and this is the pattern. The sepoys uh, mutiny, they rise up, they fight, they kill their British officers in some cases, they go to the prison of the town, they free the prisoners, they go to the treasury, they loot it, and then they head for Delhi. So this happens all over, because Delhi becomes the focal point of the rebellion. Uh, you know, it makes sense, right? Like head for the capital. There's still an emperor there in, in name only, but still um, he's there. So he becomes like the symbol. Um, okay. So there's a really brutal, like the, the imposition of discipline here is pretty brutal. And, you know, I'm not going to, we're not, we don't like want to go into too much gory detail, but I do want to give you a sense of like, John Lawrence, some of these, you know, what do you, whatever you want to call them, like terrible Victorians with their scientific kind of ideas of, uh, of repression. So when the 55th infantry mutinies in, uh, Punjab, John Lawrence, uh, he writes the following. He says, on full reflection, I would not put them all to death. 120 men are a large number to put to death. Our object is to make an example to terrify others. I think this object would be effectually gained by destroying from a quarter to a third of them. I would select all those against whom anything bad can be shown, such as general bad character, turbulence, prominence and disaffection, or in the fight, disrespectful demeanor to their officers during the first days before the 26th and the like. If these did not make up the required number, I would add to them the oldest soldiers. All of these should be shot or blown away from guns, as may be most expedient. The rest I would divide into batches, some to be imprisoned 10 years, some 7, some 5, some 3. I think a sufficient example will then be made, and that these distinctions will do good and not harm. The sepoys will see that we punish to deter and not for vengeance. Public sympathy will not be on the side of the sufferers. Otherwise, they will fight desperately to the last, as feeling certain that they might die. 
So on June 10th, they do this thing. They blow them out of cannons. That's one of their... That's one of their things. Mostly it's hanging, but one of the things they do is they tie them to a cannon and they blow the cannon. So that happened um, like at the very beginning of... Sure did. I thought that came afterwards. Well, they do that afterwards too. Well, yeah. I they know. do it They do it during, they do it before, they do it Interesting. After. Um, one British writer, uh, it's Field Marshal Lord Roberts, who wrote the book 41 Years in India, From Subaltern to Commander-in-Chief, he says, It was a wonderful display of moral force and made a deep and Im- abiding impression. There was this great virtue in it that, however unintelligible, the process by which so great a result had been achieved, and it was easy to understand the fact itself. The English had conquered and were masters of the position. So... Um, we were talking about like extinguishing the title of local kings, which was like a big thing the British were doing at this time. And they also kind of made it clear to Bahadur Shah Zafar, the last Mughal, um, that that was their plan for him too. Um, so they wanted, they were tired of like all the rituals of kind of having to bow to him and claim that they were working on his behalf it was kind of starting to rankle them because of their you know increasing ideas of racial superiority and so on so Bahadur Shah according to some of the accounts I've read was starting to try to conspire as well so he was in touch with the Shah of Persia Um, he was trying to get in touch with the Shah of Afghanistan and maybe the Russians too right Um, so uh Speaking of Europe, so I, you know, obviously, um, for the most part, because like given that this revolt was spurred in some ways by the by these racist attitudes, um, the most European, most for the most part, the European view was, you know, crush them, you know, teach them a lesson, whatever. But there were radicals in both England and France. Um, that were that kind of understood this as a big national revolt and and were well-wishers of it. So one of the Chartist leaders, uh, Ernest Jones, he wrote, this revolt turns out to be, as we assured our readers from the commencement, not a military mutiny, but a national insurrection. Um, there's a guy named Jones who wrote, uh, who had the People's Paper, September 5th, 1857. He said, the Indian Rebellion is one of the most just, noble, and necessary ever attempted in the history of the world. Um, Marx and Engels were both very sympathetic. Um, they, they described, what's that? Yeah, they would. Yeah, there's a surprise, right? <laughs> but Marx was writing for a New York uh, radical paper, and he just, he knew a lot. Like, a lot of Indians are like, how did this guy know so much because he had like lots of military detail um lots of analysis of you know the precariousness of the british position as you were saying um and then uh you know and then there were like the more mainstream views whether it's disraeli um who was a conservative uh you know kind of in the opposition not that the party system wasn't like firm in this point but disraeli was Kind of like he was a proponent. He didn't like company rule. He didn't like a lot of the stuff the company did. And he also didn't believe they should try to... He believed Indians were inferior, but he didn't believe in trying to westernize them or anything like that. Palmerston did. And Marx hated Palmerston. So Marx had a special... (laughs) He had a special interest in what was going on because he hated Palmerston so much. And then Charles Dickens, uh, he wrote... He he was very uh, in favor of 
the most punitive approach towards Indians. He said, you know, if I were in charge, I should do my utmost to exterminate the race. So there you go. Wow. Oliver Twist, the creator of Oliver Twist. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Okay. So all these soldiers go to Delhi and there's some fascinating stuff in, especially Amaresh Mishra's book about Delhi. And he, he, it's clear what he's doing. He's basically making an analogy to like the Paris Commune um, and like these revolutionary liberated zones. So um, it's just a great passage that I want to read you here about what it's like in Delhi now uh, under kind of sepoy rule. So all the sepoys flood in. They show up at the palace. And Bahadur Shah, Shah Zafar, he kind of like plays, according to this account that I've read, he's kind of playing it coy and saying, no, 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 I don't want to do this. And the sepoys say, no, you have to do this. You're you're now the emperor. <laughs> so uh, the, so here's the quote. Streets which had witnessed and once smelled Shah Jahan's processions, clown and juggling antics, kaleidoscope dances by courtesans and open balconies, hot fuming kebabs, red saffron, green and blue sweet shop colors, Yellow, purple, magenta, peshawazes, and shararas, imposing haveli facades with silver terraces, the aroma offered by the most sophisticated culture in the world. All right, uh, you know, I'll allow some exaggeration there. Beat now to a different rhythm. One that danced by shaking its hips, did not care a fig for ceremonies, broke palanquins, knocked down doorways, occupied gardens and havelis, mocked at pretensions, and literally shot down all those who tried looking down upon North Indian peasant culture. Meanwhile, Bahadur gathers a team that handled administrative matters, reflected on policies and issues of the day, deliberated international relations, conversed on religious, cultural, and philosophical matters, and participated with the sovereign in wine and opium parties. This was thus a temporal, spiritual, epicurean circle meant to disperse Mughal composite culture ideas and the idea of a universal cosmopolitan man. Um... Lots of courtesans involved in the conspiracy leading up to this and also in, you know, various positions in the rebellion. The most notable is Azizunbai. We'll get back to her, but um, she's uh, she's like, she fights in male uniform. She shoots pistols and she uh, conspired <laughs> for a while before this, uh, before the rebellion started. Um, so Bahadur, Bahadur Shah, um, he makes, uh, he intervenes directly in the grain market. He orders the Modis, that's the grain suppliers, uh, to supply the soldiers. He posts soldiers to the gates. So they kind of take control starting in May. Um, and and in August, um, Zafar, Bahadur Shah Zafar issues a proclamation kind of listing the grievances of each class. So it's like, you know, the soldiers have been squeezed, the land lords and the rulers have seen their kingdoms be disappeared. The uh, peasants have been taxed basically to the point of starvation. Um, they, you know, the servants of the, of the company can only rise to a certain level. So he kind of collects all these. It's the kind of manifesto of the, of the, um, of the rebellion. I want to talk a little bit about um, the, the military and the espionage details and, probably will stop um, with the women warriors. So I'll give Lydia her due and then we'll <laughs> take a pause. Uh, so spy versus spy, because this is like, this is where the British are just um, hard to match, right? Um, a lo- like I said, a lot of, like you were saying, 
the troops, many of the troops on both sides are Indian. So the revolutionaries have to try to win over the Indian troops. Um, and the British have to try to win over the revolutionaries back. So there's like a lot of the whole war is like a lot of maneuvering, a lot of trying to get the other side to defect, a lot of assassinating the other side's leaders. A lot. So it's just like spy versus spy kind of stuff in the, in, um, Within Delhi, the British got a couple of like kind of gang lord types um, on their side. So the rebels were uh, having to, there were like street battles between these gangsters and uh, the, the kind of rebel intelligence network. There's a book, uh, I think from the 80s by a British historian about British communication, propaganda, and, um, and also like espionage. So this historian writes, rebel intelligence was of a very high level. They were very aware of what was going on in the city, how many and who were the people in league with the British, who were acting as British informants and sending supplies to the British forces. So there are executions and revolutionary terror as long as, along with counter-revolutionary attempts to sabotage the new regime. Um, the... Bahadur Shah Zafar outlaws alcohol, so only opium, <laughs> the local <laughs> the local intoxicant is allowed. Uh, but on the other side, the British are sepoy guns were spiked several times over. The magazine of ammunition is constantly under threat. Sepoy rations were stolen. Seeds of suspicion were sown among various regiments and soldiers. Hindu-Muslim issues are raised. Mer you know, you'd send a messenger, right? The messenger would end up dead. There's lots of this kind of stuff going on. Um, big, a lot of big merchants side with the British. Um, you know, they're getting a lot out of the relationship, let's say. Um, and some of Bahadur Shah Zafar's advisors were also uh, suborned, kind of working for the British. Um, they would do things like loot and say that the sepoys did it. Um, and eventually they... Uh, the bah Bahadur Shah Zafar sets up a court of military and civil administration with six army and four civilian, uh, and they come out with their kind of land to the tiller program. Um, and then some religious leaders on in May already tried to call it just an exclusively Muslim jihad, and Zafar said no. And during Eid, he banned cow slaughter in the city. So he was, he was really trying to keep um, that Muslim-Hindu unity, which was, for the most part, a characteristic of this, this uprising. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a... So here's, here's a classic propaganda um, line from Bahadur Shah Zafar's side. Uh, they would go around telling stories that, you know, an old man would say, like, I had a dream where I saw Jesus. Uh, and, and I told Jesus, why did you send your disciples to come and turn us to Christianity and kill us all? And Jesus told me, these are not my disciples. They do not follow my path. <laughs> so they would try to claim, you know, that, that, uh, it, you know, that Jesus, they didn't actually have the sanction of Jesus. <laughs> the British didn't have the sanction of Jesus. Um, and Muslims were, you know, if it's like, atrocities are committed on Hindus and Muslims would argue, you know, if, if atrocities are being committed on Hindus today, tomorrow, Muslims will be targeted. Um, okay. Where are we? Yes. Oh yeah. Um, there's a battle of Badli Ki Serai in June and the British get this ridge overlooking the city and that's where they can shell the city from there. And there's like many, many attempts over the next months to try to dislodge them without success. And this is like 
one of the big British stories is like the story of taking that ridge and keeping that ridge in spite of repeated sepoy attacks. Um, the Punjab mobile column arrives. Marx has a lot to say about this. It's commanded by Neville Chamberlain. Dave, I remember you told me a story that you had comprehensive exams and the panel was repeatedly asking about Chamberlain's. <laughs> That's true. That was our oral exams. And there was one prof who was, uh, can I say he was a bit of a dick? <laughs> uh, yeah, the first the first guy up got a question about uh, Randolph Chamberlain. And the second guy up got a question about Neville Chamberlain. And the third guy up got a, a question about Houston Stewart Chamberlain, who was a famous racist who endorsed Hitler. And I'm next to go. And these guys are coming back and saying, damn, I got a question about, you know, and I thought, oh, my God, who's left for me? Wilt Chamberlain? Wilt Chamberlain was a basketball, basketball player. player. Yeah. <laughs> and was there a Chamberlain for you? Fortunately or no? for me, the uh, professor in question uh, didn't stick around for my part of it. So I got the pass <laughs> with flying colors. <laughs> okay. So um, overall command is taken uh, of the Delhi forces by a, Bacht, a commander named Bakht Khan. I think he's Patan, actually. Um, and he arrives on July 2nd with the whole Bareilly army and the treasury. So that's like the big, so when Neville Chamberlain arrives and that's a big boost to, um, the British and Bakht Khan arrives and that's a big, uh, boost to the Indian side. All right. So, uh, women warriors. All right. There are women organizing multi-cast <laughs> forces, high and low casts fighting together. Um, against the British here. One is Paramvir Valmiki, a leader in the Sisauli Rising. She organized a group of 250 female fighters and at one point attacked the British in Muzaffarnagar with just that group. Um, she's one of 150 armed women killed by British troops in that battle. Asha Devi Gujar, she organized a multicast female force. They were doing guerrilla warfare in Kairana and fought at the Battle of Shamli. Bhaktavanti Devi, a 150-strong women warrior band. Um, she had 200, and then another with a similar name, Bhagwanti Devi, had uh, 200 women warriors around Shamli. <coughs> Tana Bhavan Habiba had a 500-strong multicast female band, and even after Delhi falls, continues guerrilla fighting. Sobha Devi Sharma had a 500-strong band. She was stealing horses and raiding supply trains in the Shamli zone. Um, and Mishra writes that British reprisals on women warriors were savage. There were standard instructions not to include accounts of female fighters in field reports. Officially, most did not exist. It was easy, therefore, to shoot them immediately without the pretense of taking prisoners. So that's the downside of the women warriors, right? The misogynist male soldiers always treat them with particular savagery if they lose. So that was for, that was for Lydia, Dave. That, I'm surprised by how many are, are multicast. Yeah, I know. I know. But they're, they, that's what, I guess this is one of the things that happens in a revolutionary situation, right? Um, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of different um processes different alliances and like um yeah especially like the way that hindu and muslim rallied 
for this Muslim under this Muslim banner. And then on the on the other side, a lot of these commanders, especially of the guerrilla war that continues in the year after, are Hindu, um, and they have Muslim soldiers fighting for them. So Nana Saheb and um, <coughs> Azimullah Khan and Tantia Tope, that's a Hindu Muslim alliance there. So but that that's also a problem for the for the anti-British forces is that division of command. These guys weren't all immediately subordinate to uh, yeah. know, a supreme commander. They all had their own goals. And communication is a problem too, right? Because the, te- the British have the telegraph at this time. And the telegraph sure. is relatively new and they're able to... So like militarily, they're able to do things. Yeah, because of the telegraph and because of the Navy, like you said, that the sepoys couldn't match um the navy was what made you know them the coast the control of the coastal cities means they can there's nowhere really to retreat the way kind of washington was able to retreat west you know uh not an option for tatia tope when he's trying to fight a running retreating action at the end of 1857 and 58 and just to return to my luck argument, imagine if this uprising had happened not in 1857, but in 1855, the British During army would have been in the Crimea. Yeah. But they, I assume they would have been able to come back, right? But I guess invading is always harder than defending something <clears throat> that you already have. Well, they probably would have just, you know, let things run for <laughs> another yeah. year or two. Yeah. And then they come back piecemeal. I mean, the the ability of the British to kind of come back <laughs> is the is the biggest their biggest advantage. It seems yeah. to me. Uh, okay, we'll stop there. I have uh, the fall of Delhi. I have, uh, and then I have like a discussion of the so-called 1857 line, which I find fascinating. It's from, you know, for, and as opposed to different lines, the you could say the Hindutva line or the British imperialist line, uh, and just the idea of like uh, points of view in history. That's the most important thing. You can learn as much as you want.